The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 21, page 826 in the Pew Bibles. We continue making our way through the Gospel of Matthew and This morning we consider the first 11 verses of chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21 and verses 1 through 11. So let's worship the Lord together by giving careful attention to this, the public reading of his word. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Amen. That's far the reading of God's word. Let's pray and seek his blessing. Lord, we do pray that you would come to us this morning. Bless your people, we pray. Come by your spirit and work in our hearts, work in our minds. Bless us, O Lord, with understanding. Uh, Strengthen our faith. Uh, Work, we pray, Lord God, to conform us more into the image of our blessed Savior, we ask for this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, the triumphal entry, what a, what a glorious moment, what a high point in the life of Christ. I mean, just think, here he is enjoying this comfortable ride. And the vast majority of the people, they were all walking, certainly all of those in, in, in his socioeconomic class. But here was Jesus, privileged to be lifted up on the back of a donkey, lifted up amidst their praises. They were praising the Lord God, Hosanna in the highest, and they were hailing him, Jesus, as King, the Son of David, the Messiah King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so there was Jesus, right? Just, just, just basking in the glory, loving every moment of it, right? It wasn't, it wasn't quite like that. Yes, he was obviously delighting in seeing that the Lord was fulfilling his plans to establish his kingdom and his king. But these were people who had no idea what was about to happen, how that even as they were, even as they were shouting his praises, their actions were part of what would help serve to bring about his death sentence. They were working toward, towards uh, the unimaginable sufferings which Jesus was about to face. 
this event often referred to as the triumphal entry might better be called the triumphal approach because the triumphal part was really as he was approaching the city. There, that's when he was being hailed as king. When he actually enters into the city, there's quite a change. This is not a city which will joyfully receive him as king. The city we see is actually stirred up And this begins a section in which Jesus will be confronted by and challenged by the religious leaders who will lead the people in rejecting him and even crucifying him. But even so, our text shows that clearly Jesus is the messianic king. In fact, one kind of significant transition here is that it's no longer being kept a secret. What a change from what we saw back in chapter 16, verse 20, when the apostles first confessed him to be the Christ, and he strictly charged them that they tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, by God's design, and and as we see by Christ's intentional actions in this text and in the following text, here he's being publicly proclaimed as the Messiah, the King. But again, the, the publicity is what will help lead to his suffering, and yet he was willing Willing so to come. Willing to come as the humble king. Just think on that in verse 5. Behold, your king is coming to you humble. Note that well this morning, Christian. That's our message this morning. Jesus has come as your humble king. We think about that, even the fact that it's in the fulfillment of Scripture, and he comes humbly, and yet he comes humbly as King, I want us to think about the scripture fulfillment. I want to think about the glory kingship. I want to think about the humility. Those are our three points this morning. First, we'll note that he comes fulfilling scripture. Secondly, that he comes humbly. And then lastly, that he comes to claim his throne. So consider first, he comes to fulfill scripture. He comes in fulfillment of God's promise. Children, I want you to think back, those of you who attended the VBS program, which is a few weeks back now, right? Remember, among all the wonderful songs we learned that week, we sung that one song about faith. It was on Hebrews, based on Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We sung that, without faith, it is impossible to please God, because he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him, as it says in Hebrews And we sung that with faith, all things are possible. And we sung that God will do everything. God will do everything that he says he will do. Just think about that this morning. You know, God is not like you are, not like I am. We often say we'll do something and then we fail to do it. We fail to keep our promise. God is not like us. He's a God who, who makes promises and he keeps every promise that he makes. He fulfills his word. You and I, not only do we fail to fulfill our word, but we fail to live our lives believing that he will fulfill his word. At least we're not so good at believing with such strong faith all of the time. But we can be grateful this morning that we have in Jesus a Savior who was faithful, a Savior who lived his life uh, believing that God would be faithful, living with certain conviction that God's word is absolutely true. His life was a living testimony of that truth. 
And Matthew's gospel is a gospel which reminds us of that in such a wonderful way with its emphasis on how again and again the events of the life of Jesus serve to fulfill exactly what God had promised. We've seen that recurring, sometimes called the, the, uh, the uh, fulfillment formula in Matthew. Uh, we, we've, we, it's been some weeks since we've seen it. The last time was back in chapter 13, but it reappears in our text in verse 4, where it says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Reference there is to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which Matthew cites in verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. No, it was not easy and uh, comfortable for Jesus to be uh, lifted up and riding on that donkey, knowing all that was about to happen to him. But he was absolutely convinced that in so doing, he was fulfilling what God had promised. He was coming as your promised king. And this prophecy, as we see it fulfilled, is, is fulfilled with actually two animals, right? There's the colts or the foal, that is, there's the baby donkey, and there is the donkey, the foal's mother. Both are present. We know from Mark's gospel as well as Luke's gospel that this was a colt on which no one had ever ridden. And so it was, it was not the mother, it was the baby, it seems, that on which Jesus rode, a baby donkey, or at least it was, it was growing up. But just imagine this. You might think about this, children, to think that here was this young colt, maybe just, just grown up to the size where it's big enough to carry an adult rider, but it's never carried any rider. Could this, could this little donkey have ever experienced what would be its first experience carrying on its back a rider, to think that it would be carrying on its back him who is the promised Messiah, the one who himself would carry the nations on his shoulders, on his shoulders, the one who himself would be king of all the nations. Of course, the animal couldn't imagine that because animals aren't able to think with that kind of awareness. What a scary experience. Some, some suggest that, that probably the reason the mother was brought along was to help this young animal amidst the, the terror. Just imagine the, the shouting crowds, what this must have been like. But why did this happen? Because God promised this would happen. No nervousness or unruliness on the part of this donkey would be able to stop, would be able to thwart God's promises, God's word from being fulfilled and, and, and come to pass. And this would happen in fulfillment of prophecy, hundreds of years old. In fact, the prophecy of Zechariah points back even hundreds of years before that, back to Genesis chapter 49, back to the time when Jacob was, was blessing his sons and he was speaking of what would happen to them in the future. Even the patriarchs were, were prophets, weren't they? Through Jacob, God revealed that the Messiah King would come from the tribe of Judah, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And even then, of course, God was, was speaking of a foal and donkey, as well as of the wonderful sin-cleansing blood 
of the Messiah, Genesis 49, 11, Jacob said, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Brothers and sisters, just marvel at what we see, the the, the beauty uh, this morning, the beauty of God's word, Matthew's gospel, and this text in particular, and I I believe we have other allusions to the Old Testament in view here, which we'll also mention. But just think about the fact that, what a reminder for us, how is it that we know that this book, the Bible, is absolutely true? One way we know, of course, is the way that it was, it was written over 2,000 years, not to mention the fact that it was written on three different continents, uh, 40 different authors, three different languages. And it's a book of wonderful promises, promises which were, spo- which were made and then fulfilled hundreds of years later. And all of it, its message, all unified, a unified single message, all centering around Christ, this one who approached Jerusalem, being hailed as the Messiah, knowing what would, co- what would happen to him, the one who was fulfilling all that God had promised. People of God, may that, that, that truth, as we see it in our text this morning, serve to strengthen our, our own love for and our devotion to the word of God. It's the power of the word at us that moves us to obedience In riding on that colt, Jesus was being led to death, but he went because he was devoted to the word. He was convinced that God's word was true, and you and I are able to follow him and be like him and do that all all that God calls us to do in him, only as we are devoted to his word, abiding in Christ by abiding in his word, because we are in him. We are in Christ. We are called to abide in him and his word so that we might please him. It's true, children. It's true what we sung in VBS. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But with faith, all things are possible and faith rests on God's word, his promises. Dear Christian, love the word. Love the word. As you see in the word that the glorious king revealed in its pages, the king who has come to you, the king who has come to fulfill scripture. And secondly, the king who has come humbly. He has come humbly. It is true that, that even that a ride on a donkey would be a step up from walking. Of course, we should point out that with the, the rest of the people, Jesus had walked for miles and miles. He walked the vast majority of that long journey to Jerusalem. It was only for this last section that he was riding on this this donkey. And even this, this was not luxurious living by any means. I remember when I preached on the, the triumphal entry uh, back in Africa to the people in Karamoja, and I had them think about what it was like when the president of Uganda, as he occasionally would, when he would come into Karamoja, and, and everyone knew that he would, he would come in with a, a great caravan of expensive vehicles, or he might even be flown in in a, in a helicopter. And I said, can you imagine if you saw him, you know, a man riding down the road on a bicycle? And it was told, hey, there's the president, he's coming. Well, that would be unthinkable. Everyone knew that would never happen. That would be amazing humility. Well, this was a far greater act of humility. And in this context, in Matthew, we might, might think about what the people would have expected by, with this language of being hailed as a triumphant 
king. Think about a, a king coming back from a great military victory. He certainly wouldn't be riding on a donkey, much less the foal of a donkey. No, he'd be in a chariot or maybe a riding on a horse in the standard military mount. So this was in every way quite extraordinary. Now, it does have a biblical precedent. I might remember when Solomon, the first son of David king, when he became king, uh, David wanted it, David worked to have it revealed to everyone that he was David's chosen king to, to, to replace him as king. He had him ride on his mule, first kings chapter one. So that's another, another biblical connection that Jews clearly would have understood in these actions of Jesus, a claim upon the messianic Throne. He was claiming to be the Messiah, the son of David. But he was one who came humbly. Some, some suggest that the Zechariah prophecy is also in allusion to another event. Remember the time when David returned to Jerusalem as the king after the rebellion of his son Absalom. Remember in that context, David was... He was not coming in self-exalting glory, rejoicing. No, he was, he was broken over the fact that his son had been king. And so he was certainly coming in great humility, though he was coming as a victorious king. He had been, his side had won, and yet he was coming humbly, and he came in peace. Jesus likewise came peacefully. In those days, sometimes a leader would, would if he was riding into war, he would ride a horse but if he, if he was coming in peace, he would ride a donkey. And the Zechariah prophecy speaks wonderfully to how, how the Lord was promising peace through the Messiah. It says in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. How wonderful. Peace. This was contrary to what was widely expected in Jesus' day. Jesus was, was not coming to lead the people in anti-Roman insurrection. No, he was coming in humility and he was coming in peace. One commentator, R.T. France, I think puts this well when he writes that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, but not the sort of Messiah much popular patriotism might have hoped for. He writes, Zechariah's vision prepares the reader well for a kingship which will be established without violence and indeed through submitting to the will of his enemies so that his ultimate triumph will come only when he is vindicated and saved from death by the power of God. And we say amen. Praise God to that. That, that. That's the good news of the gospel. The king will come in humble submission. He'll be given into the hands of his enemies. Ultimately, he will come in, in perfect submission to the will of his God, obedience, obedience all the way to death, even the death on the cross, and the Lord will raise him up as the everlasting king of glory. There's one point that, that France also makes, which I think is, is worth noting in this regard, speaking of submitting to the will of his enemies. We, we might recall that in some ways, Galileans were regarded as enemies by the people of Judea, at least in terms of the way they looked down on them with disdain. There was, there was rivalry, uh, rivalry, tribal rivalry among or within 
Israel. We've, we've made this point in the sermon series before uh, on Matthew, the way that the Jews of Judea looked down on those from Galilee. This is all part of the wonderful humility of the Christ, to think that, that, that God became, in Jesus, became true man, and not only any man, he became part of the lowly Jews who were so looked down on within the Roman Empire, and not only the Jews, but he became the lowliest of the Jews. Jesus became a Galilean. We're well reminded by verse 11 of our text that Matthew's gospel is the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth of Galilee. Think about those words which we see there in verse 11. This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So those are words which would not have necessarily have encouraged a warm reception by those in Jerusalem in preaching on this event. Preachers sometimes make what's perhaps a mistake or at least sort of an overstatement of the case, and I've even done this myself. We, we tend to compare the crowd in this text the triumphal entry with the crowd at the crucifixion, and we assume that it's essentially the very same people, and so we point out, well, people are so fickle. Look, one moment they're, they're hailing Jesus as king, and then the very next moment they're, they're shouting, crucify him. Well, as you look at our, our text, you note in verse 9 that it's the ones who hailed him as king were the ones who were traveling to Jerusalem with him. We see that it's the crowds that, that went before him and that followed him. And so these are Galilean pilgrims traveling to Jerusalem for the feast. He's among his disciples, not just the 12, among the greater group, but there was this larger group who were basically all Galileans. We, we do know based on John chapter 12, verse 13, that it seems that there were some who were already in Jerusalem and they heard that he was coming and they also went out to receive him. And so they were, they were part of the, the crowd. But I think it's true that by and large, these were Galileans who were hailing Jesus as king. These were ones who to one degree or another had sort of come to believe in him, if not with true saving faith. They were, they were believing this must be the Messiah. And so there was somewhat of a, a unified profession as they were hailing him as king. By contrast, the Jews of Judea are offended by the notion that the Messiah would come from Galilee. So perhaps indeed it's, it's they particularly who were the ones who ended up leading the, 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 the cry for crucifixion. It is true that, that people are fickle, and I don't think we need, need to deny the fact that some of the Galileans also may have, in one moment, hailed him as king and then turned on him and shouted, crucify him. We need only remember that his own disciple, Judas Iscariot, also turned on Jesus and betrayed him. But all this to say, speaking of Jesus being the Galilean, you know, if you, if you ever, ever feel like you've been looked down upon and treated with disdain because of your ethnicity or any other thing, Jesus understands exactly how you felt, and this is all part of his, his humble, humble suffering for you. Jesus is, is the only ultimate and truly innocent victim. Being ridiculed as the Galilean is part of his unimaginable sufferings for you and me all the way to the cross. Jesus has come as your humble king. He comes fulfilling scripture. He comes humbly. And then lastly, he comes to claim his throne. Make no mistake 
about it in fulfillment of scripture. Because of his great humility, he is the one who would, he is the one who will reign forever and ever. That was glory. And that was the glory which he sought, not not the praises of confused and yes, perhaps fickle Galilean pilgrims or Jewish pilgrims, but the true glory, the glory prepared for him by the Father, the glory which would follow his suffering. Jesus was bound for a throne, a kingdom, a kingdom where God would be supremely glorified and his people would be blessed in his presence to worship and serve him forever and ever. You know, as, as we see Jesus in our passage this morning, on the one hand, obviously, this is, this is the time of his humiliation, his suffering, but we have to appreciate how we're also given such, such wonderful signs of his glory, his exaltation by God's design. Even everything we see, you know, the crowds praising him, uh, the, 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 the cutting of the branches, waving branches, spreading the cloaks, all of these were wonderful signs of the glory which would surely Come And of course, as we understand what Jesus has done for us, we understand that even his humility, his humble suffering was glorious. It was meritorious obedience. He purchased our salvation by it. We say worthy is the lamb who was slain. But we also see, we also see his, uh, his glory. We also see his exaltation. I suppose in some ways, What we see here and sort of seeing together, mixed right there together, humility yet glory, we we see something of the, 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 the mystery, the incomprehensible mystery of the fact that Jesus was truly man and yet he was truly God. He was a true man. I've used before that, and I love the, the illustration. Jesus is the one who will be blindfolded. He'll have that blindfold place over his eyes while he's beaten, and he will receive those blows in the same way you or I would receive those blows, in, in the sense that he would receive them, not knowing when and from which direction the next blow would come. Jesus truly understands what it feels like when we feel like we're taking blows in the head and we're being swept away by events over which we have no control. Jesus understands what that feels like. That's absolutely true, and we praise God for it. But the other side of the coin is that we see here Jesus, in Jesus, one who was sovereignly working, orchestrating all of these events. We see a Jesus who, who sends out his disciples with these specific instructions about how to procure these animals. I, I disagree with those who suggest, well, you know, there must have been a previous arrangement made. Maybe he'd sent some, some messengers and they worked out, we're going to borrow your donkey and so forth. No, I think what we see in verse 3, those, those words simply say, the Lord needs them. This was a promise that there would be a miraculous working of, of compliance, right? Just say the Lord needs them, and the owner or anyone else who might stand in your way, they'll step aside. Jesus was working powerfully here. At any rate, whatever the case, what, what wonderful signs of Christ's glory. The signs of his exaltation. We see his, his, his authority, not only authority as eternal God, but we see the authority that will be given him upon a completion of his work as the God-man, Messiah, the Lord Christ. 
he would be given all authority in heaven and on earth. And already he was acting on that authority. Already he was working as he was working to achieve this, taking his destiny into his own hands. Jesus was, indeed, Jesus was claiming his throne glory. Glory indeed. That, brothers and sisters, is what motivated him on this journey, riding on this donkey, being hailed as king, even knowing all the suffering he would soon face. He did so knowing that he was bound for glory. And we know that he's finished his work, and we know that he has, has, has been raised from the dead. He has entered into his glory. And we praise God that it's, it was not only for himself, it's his glory, and it's your glory and my glory the glory that's promised and belongs to all those who are trusting in Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul could write to the believers what he does in 2 Corinthians. In fact, if you want to see this this morning, I invite you to turn your Bibles with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. I want to think on these words in closing this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. I would remind us that the book of 2 Corinthians is a book which shows so extensively the sufferings of the Apostle Paul more than any other book. We see that particularly in uh, the 11th chapter. But even here, in the immediate context, Paul has been describing the, the intense anxiety he's felt over the welfare of Titus and over the church in Corinth where, uh, Paul, where he had sent Titus. Such, such godly concern was part of his apostolic Suffering, And yet look at what he writes here in, in uh, chapter 2 and verse 14. He writes, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. I don't know whether Paul was thinking about the triumphal entry, but I think it's a, a connection that is good to make here. He always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of of him everywhere. Such a beautiful description of the apostolic ministry, but I think it's a description of, of how every one of us ought to see our life in Christ Jesus. Consider both parts of that verse. It says, thanks be to God. Think on that, indeed. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, Christian, this morning you can know that your humble king has claimed his throne and he has claimed you. And as you belong to him, you are bound for glory. That's true no matter what you're facing. Your life is not a life of being swept away by events that are random and out of control. No, you belong to Christ and Christ controls your destiny. Not a hair can fall from your head apart from the will of him, your sovereign Lord. And you know that he is working. He is working to accomplish all the good that God has purposed and planned for you. Even when you're suffering trials, you can know that that is true. Every step that you take is a step upward and onward unto glory in Christ Jesus. So what's the application? Give thanks. We always give thanks. Give thanks to God and rejoice. Paul elsewhere writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. That this is a call to live by faith. Christian, it's true. Uh, Children, it's true. Christians, it's true. Without faith, 
It's impossible to please God. But with faith, all things are possible. Faith unites us to Christ. And as those who belong to Christ, we have sufficient grace to do all that God has called us to do as we endure all things. Consider the second part of that verse. And what does it say? And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. As those who are bound for glory. We, 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 we press on by the grace of Christ and we do so, we're promised, spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him. What an encouragement to us in our evangelistic endeavors. We are, we are those called to bear witness of a kingdom, a kingdom which will endure forever and ever when all of the kingdoms of this world will have been cast down and destroyed and are no more. And yet our kingdom is established not as we take up swords, not as we give ourselves to, to violence, not as we act in obnoxious <laughs> or ways that are rude and so forth. No, we, we come in the, the humility we come in the, the peace of Christ. We, we clothe ourselves in humility. We give ourselves to love and compassion and kindness. We, 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 we live lives uh, filled with the Spirit. That's the manner in which God calls us to walk. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. That's the power of Christ in us. That's the path of humble obedience on which Jesus walked, and that's the path to which he calls us as we belong to him in Christ, in the fulfillment of all that God has promised in him, our humble king, the one who is indeed leading us in triumphal procession. Let us walk, Uh, let us follow him, and let us in so doing, by his grace, spread the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere we go. May God help us to do it. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord God, how we bless you that you have been so good, so faithful to your word. You have kept all of your promises. We bless you that you have become our Messiah King in Christ Jesus. Thank you for our Savior. Thank you for his humble suffering. Thank you, Lord God, for his eternal Glory, And we pray, Lord God, that this day we might be again strengthened by this, the true gospel, that you might cause your kingdom to come more and more in us and be realized in our lives, even as we live as your kingdom people, as we live for the glory of your great name. Hear us, Lord God, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.